0: the following message is from king's cross church in manchester new hampshire for more information please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com so today we come to what is arguably one of the most well-known passages in the entire bible Uh, if you've been to a wedding my guess is you've heard part of it if not all of it if you were a fan of lauren hill in the late 90s post uh post fugees if memory serves uh, you might recognize some of the phrases in the song, uh, tell him. It, that was uh, that was our jam this morning at the Denio household. It's a great song. Not necessarily about God, but still uses a lot of those uh, phrases. Part of it was quoted by Wilson during an episode of Home Improvement. Any Home Improvement? Anyone know what that is? Excellent, okay. So I'm going to be directing my rhetoric over in this direction. That's where I saw the most hands. I'm not judging all of you, but but you got to go where the action is. Uh, It's been a part of presidential inaugural addresses. It was read at the funeral of Princess Diana. Undoubtedly, especially on this weekend of Valentine's Day, uh, made it onto many a Hallmark card, onto many a Christian mug, and is a certain go-to for wedding ceremonies. Uh, And it's a powerful passage, to be sure. Uh, But even more powerful, I believe, when it's actually read in the context of the spiritual gifts, where Paul puts it. Um, So I've come to think of this as a triage text. And if you're not familiar with battlefield triage, when you've got wounded soldiers on the battlefield, it's sort of like all hands on deck. Uh, the, The medic is just patching people up in any way that they can. There's no surgery prep. There's no pristine operating room. In most normal circumstances, there's an opportunity to debate what would be the best course of of treatment here, but when you're in the thick of it, you're just patching people up as best you can. Um, And in those instances, you're not dealing with theory. You're just responding to a very specific need in a very specific uh, moment with the idea of moving people forward. Or another way to think of it is uh, what I've heard referred to as task theology, theology that's not theoretical. Uh, It's actually born out of particular situations. And in case that's a little bit less than clear, Corinthians is full of this. Um, So if you go all the way back to chapter 7, Paul starts with his and now concerning statements. Um, And it seems as though the Corinthians have written him a letter where they're asking all of these questions about how the gospel applies. And now concerning marriage. And now concerning meat sacrifice to idols. And now concerning things of the spirit. Uh, And Paul offers his perspective on how the gospel applies in those situations. And it's interesting, at least to me, that as the gospel moves into more Greco-Roman context, there's just situations that they haven't really dealt with before. There's questions that need to be raised um, as the gospel moves into more, more pagan context. They're just situations that haven't really been thought of. So a lot of the New Testament is that sort of task theology where you're thinking, how would the gospel apply to this, uh, this situation? So in an encouraging way, uh, the Corinthians seem curious about how like, they've thought to ask. They want to know, how does the gospel apply to marriage and to remarriage? And hey, our habit has been you know, eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Is that, is that OK? I remember when I became a believer in college, my first thought was, uh, what do I do with my CD collection? Um, do I get to keep it? Uh, do I get to watch? Now, a CD, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's this, it's this round disc, which with some wizardry songs play on, on that disc. And then I was actually going to say films instead of VHS, uh, because what do I do with my, with my movies? It's kind of the same thing. Like the gospel, uh, you've come to Christ, you've made a decision to follow him, and now how does that affect... Affect the rest of my life And even in modern times Churches in different contexts They have to wrestle with this We were in Ethiopia for a a time And one of the big issues That the Kalahewit Church That's a major denomination in Ethiopia Had to deal with is What do you do in the case Where somebody becomes a believer But they have multiple wives Like this is a significant issue It's theoretical for us Do they stay married to everybody? Do they divorce all but the first wife. So this is an issue that they really had to wrestle with. It's theoretical for us. We can't really picture somebody in that situation, but for them, for them it was a, a real uh, clear and, and present danger with significant implications for the life of their communities. And as an aside, I think that we need to be aware that there are some people that our theory might actually be their, their triage. Uh, we might debate divorce and remarriage, for example, uh, but it's important to remember who's listening and how they're hearing us. Um, so in these situations, I think that Paul is, is very safe uh, in, in the ways that he communicates. And even in the context of the spiritual gifts, we might be talking theory when someone else in the Christian community has been either marginalized by the spiritual gifts or has actually had them uh, weaponized against them. So for example, at some point in your life, you may have been made to feel like a second-class Christian because you didn't speak in tongues. You want to, you want to be ministering with sensitivity as, as you think about that. So as we're thinking through these situations, as we're kind of engaged in this task theology thing, we want to minister with, with sensitivity and to actual real-life uh, situations. So thus comes the love chapter. Uh, it's not the pristine vision of a life free of conflict floating effortlessly over life's hardship. Uh, It's task theology. It's the exposition of love in the context of their life as a community of Jesus followers. And even more specifically, it's an exposition of love in the context of exercising the spiritual gifts. And I want, if I can, to weave this chapter in with what we've been thinking about in terms of the spiritual gifts and even with the idea of friendship, which we explored last week. I want specifically uh, to, to think about how does thinking about 1 Corinthians 13 <coughs> strengthen our thinking about spiritual gifts? How does it strengthen our thinking about friendship and the health of our community? Right? This is read at weddings, and it's often taken as an individual text, but it's a community text, and I think it has to be heard that way. So I'd like to uh, situate the chapter in the context and to hear it as part of Paul's overall teaching about the spiritual gifts. And I think I can just speak, I don't know if I can speak for others, I'll speak for myself. We've been wading through some pretty deep water uh, over these weeks and exploring what has been for me some exciting and challenging categories in the life of a Christian community. Um, So exciting because it invites more of God's presence in and around and among us, and difficult because it moves us, hopefully, beyond ideas about God into actual experiences of Him. Which is, if you've never—I see a couple head nods—so I think I think that makes sense. Where you're moving from theory into actual practice, like you you actually have a higher level of intimacy with God as a result of having experienced Him. And I want to commend Jacob for his diligence in guiding us through these issues. Um, I think it would have been pretty easy to look at that uh, challenging terrain. I think it would have been easy to go around it um, or just to, to preach a sermon about it and, and then have that be it. And I think that I've been enriched by not just the sermons themselves, but the conversations at missional uh, communities. I really resonated with what Jay said last week about like if, if you're not in a missional community at this point, uh, I think he said something about like it's time. Uh, which I, I think is is absolutely true, because those conversations have really enriched our thinking. Even in our family, Stephen and I have had some conversations about we we've been in contexts where that would not have happened. Not just that the passage wouldn't have been preached, but people wouldn't have been invited to come forward and to to pray to receive those gifts and to have it um, become part of the overall. Uh, life of the church. So I I commend Jacob for that, and I'm I'm grateful uh, beyond measure for sure. So as Paul concluded, or he expounded upon the things of the Spirit, of the gifts, how the body of Christ is interrelated, he concluded chapter 12 with the admonition to desire the greater gifts, but also with the statement of a more excellent way. And it's to that way that we now turn. So the main point today, very simple, very straightforward chapter. Love is the foundation of healthy Christian community. Oh, look at that. Just so amazed that I say it and it happens. Though I was running this morning, I did forget to put one of these in a slide. So uh, I'm, I'm a failure. But I have remarkable, uh, what's, what's the word? Resilience. I, I feel really good about myself too. So I just bounce back almost immediately. So um, <laughs> so, so fairly obvious, love is the foundation of all uh, healthy Christian community. So the first three verses, uh, love frames all that we do in Christian community. Verses one to three, and I'll read them. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not, do not have love, it profits me nothing. So these first three verses set the stage for all that follows, and they're crystal clear. They're not difficult to understand. There's no parable here. There's no riddles. Um, Paul is saying that even the positive things that we do Even the things that are clear evidence that God is at work in some amazing way in and around us are for naught if we don't have love. I immediately uh, thought of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, which are projected. You might have wondered, like, why is it 1 Corinthians, but then Matthew 7 on the slide? You should have been paying attention to the first three verses. But anyway, Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what gives me the greatest pause here in Matthew 7 and in 1 Corinthians is that all the things that Jesus and Paul describe are qualitatively good things. Um, In Paul's case, he speaks about speaking in tongues, of having prophetic powers, and of giving away all that he has. In Jesus' case, he talks about prophecy, about casting out demons and doing many miracles, and all with the phrase, in your name. In both cases, these good things come to nothing. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's because these so-called disciples uh, did what they did apart from intimate connection to Jesus, They never knew him, and in 1 Corinthians, it's because they didn't have love, and I'm not trying to create any undue anxiety here, but these are pretty sobering texts to reflect on. Um, If nothing else, both texts are a very clear warning about the orientation of our hearts when it comes to following Jesus, Uh, something we need to pay very close attention to. Even in Luke's gospel where the disciples are sent out and they come back and they're very excited about the things that they've seen and the things that they've done. And Jesus responds by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And it's a warning that they should be rejoicing over the fact that their names are written in heaven and not over these these newfound powers that they have. So once we're duly warned, what do we do? Uh, The challenge, at least as I see it, is building an environment or a culture where we cultivate love. So it's not enough to think, just to think properly about love. Uh, We need to express it in concrete ways. Uh, Paul's verb in verses 1 to 3 is to have. He says it three times, to have, to have. Uh, We have to have love as we're doing these things. And I'm going to keep circling back to the main point for the simple reason that none of what we do in community with each other matters at all if we don't have love. And with an eye toward missions, I think that the, the display of the kind of love we're going to see here, uh, we don't have to throw a rock very far in the neighborhood that we're in to where this sort of love uh, is what people desperately need. So love frames all that we do and it frames all that we are in Christian community. This transitions into the key question of how do we actually define love so that we can have it and go about expressing it in the assembly of God's people. And here's where we get to the the actual virtues. So I'll read verses 4 to 7. As an aside, before I read it, most of the stuff that I read on 1 Corinthians 13 urges this kind of slow, reflective reading of it. So, not blowing through it because you know what it already says, because you've heard it at weddings. Um, it's, it's this real reflective reading. So, anyway, no extra charge for that one. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So before we dig into each of the virtues individually, I want to start with just the 10,000-foot view of the chapter uh, before moving into each uh, clause. Um, And if we could get the next, this is where I have to pay attention. Uh, Not that I haven't been paying attention up to this point, of course, but next slide. Okay. Uh, first, love is compelling. So this is just the 10,000-foot overview. As we look over the description of love, I don't think I'm alone in wanting to reflect these attributes in my friendships. Like if I were to get out of bed in the morning, I just and to be able to engage in this kind of love with all of the people that I interact with in the course of a day, which for those of you that don't know me is with 110 of Manchester's finest over at Hillside Middle School, if I could engage my day in this way with my family, with my friends, with students, that's compelling. And I don't think anybody looks at this description and says, wow, that looks terrible. That's just, that would be such an awful way to live. I just look at it and say, wow, what I would give to be a person who displays these qualities in large measure. And the more I think about God, the more I realize this is exactly who he is. This is a description of God's character. He's compelling in every aspect of his character. Safe in all of the ways that he relates to human beings. And just as another aside at this point, if I could... Well, actually, no, I'll get to that later. Forget it. I'll I'll, I'll cheerfully withdraw. Second, love is inherently humanizing. Most of our interpersonal problems come in our failure to recognize people as people, as image bearers who bear God's image and are worthy of dignity and respect. And I think that I could get some buy-in on that if you think of the negative exchanges you've had uh, over the past week or as you were walking into the polling place on, on Tuesday. Uh, sorry, uh, it was primary week. Um, most of the problems that we have are that we view people as things and not as people. So love is inherently humanizing. Third, love is not a spiritual gift. Uh, chapter 12 is clear that not everyone serves the same function in terms of gifting in the body of Christ. Not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Not everybody's going to prophesy. Not everybody's a good administrator. If you put me up here with a guitar, I would be a disaster. Um, I was going to sing All You Need Is Love at the end, uh, but that idea got vetoed pretty quickly at my house. Um, So um, (laughs) there isn't a shred of evidence in chapter 13 that the characteristics of love are off limits. to any follower of Jesus. So sorry, patience is not a spiritual gift. It's something that we're all supposed to show in some measure. I don't get to say like, well, sorry, but not being arrogant is not my <laughs> spiritual gift. So what can I do? This is the way God made me. Uh, no, no, these are not spiritual gifts. Uh, these, are, these are rules that are common to the whole house. So sorry to disappoint you. Fourth, uh, love reflects the image of the creator. And this is where I want to start to dig deeper. God never calls us to a standard that he doesn't display himself. And as image bearers, we are meant to reflect God in the world. So, And, and this, is, this is a switch I wish I could just flip in everybody's head, including my own, that whenever we're talking about more virtuous living, it's not an ethic of doing better. It's a call back to who God created us to be in Genesis in the first place. And I hope uh, that if that's an issue that's a stumbling block for you, that, that that's, a, that's a liberating word. This isn't a shame game. So as soon as I read, love is patient. Is anybody triggered by that? Yeah. OK. So a couple. The rest of you are spiritual giants. That's wonderful. But you, you feel this. I mean, I can think of at least nine different exchanges where I wish I had been more patient. In, in that exchange, and it, it can be a shame game where you think you're being called to do better. Um, but it's actually an invitation to be more, to flourish under the character uh, or the care of a God who's fundamentally with you and for you. So even at those moments where you feel guilt and shame about impatience, I think it's important to picture at that moment that it's not a God who begrudgingly forgives you for it and says, well, we'll see how it works out next time as he's like tapping his clipboard waiting for you to screw it up again. That's not who God is. He's the God who's fundamentally with you and for you. That's the language of Romans 8. So when we inevitably mess these things up, it's the God who says, yeah, that wasn't great. Let's get back up on the horse and ride again. Empowered by God's spirit, maybe you have to apologize minus the maybe, uh, if you've displayed impatience. Sorry, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But anyway, that's how we should view these virtues, as reflections of the character of the God who acts concretely in human history and in human circumstances. So God's not a theory. God's not a set of ideas. He's a person. And he's the person who displays all these attributes in large measure. So um, what I want to do... As we look through these, it's kind of like a little spiritual formation exercise. So strap your seatbelts on. You're going for a little ride. Um, in each of these virtues, I want to focus on just a couple questions. And if uh, this is the slide I forgot to put on, so this is me confessing my, my total failure as a human being. Uh, so you'll actually have to write these questions down as I say them, or not, because that's like totally your choice. That's what Deuteronomy seemed to say this morning, like, Step before you, you could do it, or you don't have to. Um, so anyway, that's like my middle school lecture. You don't have to turn in your homework if you want to see me again next year. Um, <laughs> with the joke we always, what's, what's better than doing eighth grade once? Doing it twice. Uh, so um, turn your homework in. Anyway, first, the first question is to ask, what does it mean? So when we talk about patience, what does it mean? What, what does the word actually mean? Um, the second question is, where do I see this virtue evident in the life of Jesus? And then the third is, in what specific ways is the Lord pressing in on this? Like, where can I cultivate this in my life? So just as an example, let's look at the first clause, which is love is patient. That's simple, simple enough in theory. Uh, So first, how does the Bible define patience? And in most cases, it's going to mean exactly what you think it means. Um, But there's some times where you need a little bit more nuance. Second, where do I see patience operative in the life of Jesus or the life of God in the Old Testament? And finally, what are the specific ways that the Lord's pressing in on this? Where can I cultivate patience in my life? And quite frankly, and this is where the breakdown usually happens, this shouldn't be a quick process. Uh, it might involve some difficult conversations with some safe people, uh, people whose spiritual health and vitality you look up to. Uh, so this is a framework I want to utilize for exploring these virtues. Um, so uh, I guess I, I like the image of planting trees. It's going to take a long time because something that goes to the heart of who you are, like that, that should take a long, a long time to unravel. Um, if we want to go deep with this work of spiritual formation. Um, so part of life as a community is discerning how God is at work in us and among us. And even in the assembly of God's people, that's not an easy thing. So I want to reflect carefully on how God might be pressing into us in these areas. Because we've pressed with the spiritual gifts. Like we've had some pretty rich conversations about them. And I think that we equally need to press into the love element as well, because if I understand Paul correctly, without love, none of it matters. So patience as another example, you have to be able to discern what might the Lord be pressing in on, like what might actually be a spiritual condition of the heart that need to be examined, or what might just be a bad day, right? Because I personally, I have sloppy categories of like my physical, spiritual, and emotional health on the Venn diagram all like completely overlap with each other. So if I am acting in impatient ways, it's as likely that I'm tired or hungry or haven't run that day or I'm just fussy uh, and, and that's probably not a good idea to say to somebody uh, if, if they're acting in that way. It's not necessarily a spiritual problem. Does that make sense? So I don't freak out about like, oh, God hates me because I acted impatiently. Like, no, I just need a nap. Um, like, like, a, like a good two-year-old, I, I go off to my pack and play and take a nap. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so it's not necessarily a negative condition of the heart. Um, but I think that part of our growth as mature, into maturity as Christians is we have to think through what's the difference. Like if I'm regularly displaying impatience in large measure and it really starts to become a part of who I am, that's where we need to throw on the brakes and have some safe conversations and to say, why is this my default response? Does that make sense? Um, so it might just be, okay, I had an off day. I, I went with, uh, what was it, Dickens' line in a Christmas carol. Like a bit of bad beef or something where he thinks he's just hallucinating you've read a christmas carol right yeah. have you read it or just seen the movie just, i want to know what your favorite one is but we don't have time for that right now so your your favorite uh charles or the christmas carol movie but i can't do that now sorry um so we need to discern the difference between what's an off day versus what god is is really doing So if we were sitting and having a conversation about spiritual formation, I would ask you, as we go through these, what causes you to pause? Which one makes you chafe a little bit? You start to get a little uncomfortable in your seat. Which one makes you defensive? Which one do you find compelling? what i would be looking for is where god might be at work in your reading of this text so that's how you do it like if there's one that that jumps out at you more than others you want to pay attention to that so those are kinds of the issues i'm i'm thinking about cuz this is where Ideas and experience just collide with each other. And if we just read through and define, like, well, this is what patience meant in the Greco Roman world, and blah, 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 like, nobody cares. It doesn't matter. Unless it's living and active, because that's what scripture is. So the call for us is to meditate on these things. And why does it matter? Because <laughs> the Corinthians, like most philosopher types in the ancient world, they're all about abstract ideas, right? Debate, and discuss. And the problem with this is that ideas are only the first step. And unless ideas take over and they shape how you live, they're not useful. Um, You can be right in argument uh, and still not express it with love and compassion. You can be right and wrong in all the wrong ways. You you know what I mean? Uh, Not that that's relevant in an election year, Um, but to carry it into Corinth, you can have all the best gifts and you can still express them in self-exalting ways. In Christian community, um, that's a problem. So even worse, you can use it as a weapon against other people. So thinking about how Jesus actually embodies these ideals is a worthy exercise, because without love, it doesn't matter. So um, really quick, as we as we go through these virtues, what I've done is there's going to be some slides where I just looked up. This is where the same word gets used, and all of these scripture references I have like on a neat and clean one sheet in a category like by clause. So if you're interested in that, I'm happy to send you that. I was glad to hear Jacob say we're big on the Bible because um, one of these things too is uh, there's a lot of scripture here. And the reason being, I don't want to spout off with my own opinion about what patience is. Like these are the cases where the word gets used, and this is what I think it means. Um, and if, if you want to tease out any of these uh, a little bit more, I'm happy to do that. There's tons of scripture that I won't address. And from what I understand, there's a Q and A after. So if I'm not clear on anything, I'm not uh, super defensive about that either. So um, I, I teach middle school math, so. I'm, I'm used to an environment where people can throw their hand up in the air midway and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then we can, we can slow down. But this doesn't allow for that. So anyway, first up is love is patient. So the best translation of patience is long-suffering. And it has to be said like that. Long-suffering, yep. Uh, So we don't need to really spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. We know what it is. But if you look at these slides, 1 Peter 3.20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely. So God displays patience. Next slide. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, perish but that all should reach repentance." That's 2 Peter. And Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So um, this just shows that this is fundamental to God's character. And in Christian community, we, like God, suffer long with people. And we suffer alongside them. We're patient and we long for their wholeness. That's what God does. We're willing to put ourselves aside to not be self absorbed in order that we can bear with one another in this way. So that's patience. Moving to the next clause love is kind, it's not jealous. So Ephesians 4 says to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we show the same kindness to others that God has shown to us. So this is set alongside jealousy. It says love is this, it's not this. It's not zealous. Like the word here for jealousy is actually where we get the word zealous, and in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's a pretty tricky word. Zealous doesn't mean that you're like, like really enthusiastic about an idea. Um, it means that you're willing to kill somebody for it. Like that's zeal in the Bible. Uh, so the the portrait of Paul in the book of Acts, that's zeal in, in the Bible. Um, and Paul uses this word to describe his commitment to the traditions in Philippians 3. It's people that are so into the truth as an abstract principle that they actually end up disregarding human beings to win arguments. Or in Paul's case, he's actually seeking to arrest and murder them. Um, So that's the opposite. So love is kind. It's not zealous. It's not jealous. Or the jealousy could be taken as kind of a hoarding mentality. So James 3.16 talks about this. We're discontent and we're self-absorbed. So we're jealous of what others have. We're jealous of the things that we want. And whichever way you view it, God's kindness extends itself lavishly. And we should be extending it lavishly as well. So there's, I want to make sure that makes sense. Love is kind, not jealous, meaning it doesn't hoard. It doesn't hold on to things. And it doesn't pursue uh, zealousness uh, with disregard to people. It's looking for ways that other people can flourish in the same way that God looks for us to flourish. Now, think about this in context of the spiritual gifts. So we don't hoard gifts. One of the hallmarks of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 14 is going to be it's for the common good. We don't exercise spiritual gifts so that people can see us flexing our spiritual muscles and be impressed by us. It's meant for the edification of the whole. And correspondingly, we aren't jealous of the giftedness of other people. And I think that might be a significant category to press into as well. We take on the idea that we're actually enhanced by the giftedness of other people. Like we're not threatened by them. We're actually enhanced by their giftedness. And we're constantly thinking about like how good God is in giving people gifts in the first place, and how awesome it is that that person is doing the work of God and exercising those spiritual gifts. Next up is love does not boast. It is not arrogant. So Paul addresses this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. He says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the The presenting problem for the Corinthians seems to be self-exaltation and boasting. And Paul immediately draws them back to humble submission. So love is not arrogant. And I think that as a community, we just need to be aware of health and accountability in this area. Uh, That none of us, well, at least that I've experienced, are just outright boasting or showing arrogance. Matt's not up here like with the ropes attached to him in the smoke machine as he's like, floating out over the crowd. He's not not like that. Though that would be hilarious. Now that I got that image in my head, that's going to be hard to get out. Um, Matt's, Matt's out there. Um, but we are, I think, as a community, prone to drift. So if that's something that you feel especially prone to or you feel triggered by, uh, it's important to seek counsel and accountability for that. Um, and it's important that you name it for what it is, not defensively saying, well, I'm not arrogant, and then yeah, that's, that's not a great way to go. Um, because people exercising their gifts in arrogant ways or using their words in arrogant ways, it wreaks havoc in the church, and it wreaks havoc on the reputation of the church. The next clause, which I don't have a slide for, love does not act disgracefully. This was like, this is just straight-up inappropriate behavior. So it wasn't even, I, I mean, I apologize. I don't think it's really worth expounding upon. Paul kind of addresses this in 1 Corinthians 5, like, it's just bad behavior. Nobody, you shouldn't be drunk outside whiskeys at 3 o'clock on Sunday morning. Like, it's just inappropriate behavior. So if, if that's your thing, uh, talk to Jacob. Um, <laughs> uh, but in, in Christian community, it, it, we don't act disgracefully. We don't act in that way toward each other. Uh, the next one is, is interesting. Uh, Love does not seek its own, is the way that it's translated. So love isn't just looking out for itself. So here are some cases, and we have some slides for these, where Jesus' example is helpful and compelling. So this is John 7. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus here is the perfect example of somebody who shows love in the ways that he doesn't seek his own interest, and the next slide in Philippians two is the same thing. By the way, Philippians two would be an excellent chapter uh, to spend some extended time reflecting on. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest—that's the phrase—but also to the interests of others. And verse. Five, right after this, is your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and goes on, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Like, Jesus is the ultimate sermon illustration of what this looks like, that we don't behave in self-exalting or selfish ways toward each other. Um, So if we're acting in love in this way, we're committed to following the Father, we're looking for ways to pour ourselves out on behalf of others. And we're not oriented primarily to our own needs. Uh, Next one, love is provoked. Or excuse me, yeah, that little slip there. Uh, Love is not provoked. Now, this one does require a little bit of nuance um, because there are actually two places in the Old Testament where it says that God is provoked. So uh, Numbers, uh, let's see, where do I have it here? Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy 1. Uh, say that God is actually uh, He is provoked by Israel's disobedience. In Acts 17, Paul sees the idolatry in Athens, and he's provoked in his spirit as well. Now, this isn't like a scandal in the Bible. I think what it means is that we are provoked by the right things. So some translations will throw, love is not easily provoked, meaning that love isn't, isn't off-put by, by trite or trivial things. So love, I guess you could say, gets provoked by, by the right things. And in God's case, he's provoked by Israel's rejection. In Paul's case, the idolatry provokes him because it's just an affront to God. It's not an affront to him. Like, Paul isn't seeing it as, as something that's tied to his identity. It's an affront to God. So perhaps a good question to ask is, what am I provoked by? And am I provoked by the same things that God is? Uh, Dave Hamilton last week read Isaiah 58, which speaks about God's heart for justice. He talks about, like, Israel in their sinfulness would declare a fast because, for some reason, God wants us to do religious things when we're we're bad. Uh, And Isaiah 58 is a very clear statement that this is not the fast that I wanted. The fast that I actually wanted was for you to be looking out for the poor and the marginalized. So... Are we provoked by the same things that God is? Another question more personal might be, what are the things that I'm provoked by? Does that map on to what what God is provoked by? Just a couple more. Uh, Love keeps no record of evil. This one, to me, and I'll I'll try to hold it in, Uh, this is worth slowing down and reflecting on quite a bit. And in some way that I have never been able to fully grasp God forgets our sin. He doesn't remember. So in Jeremiah, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And just in case we're inclined to think of that as just an Old Testament promise, it's quoted again in Hebrews 8 and 10, uh, this Jeremiah passage is. So what does this mean for us? If we're to act in love as God does, we don't keep records of wrongs. We don't throw sin in people's faces. We don't hold grudges. And if we were, had all kinds of time to explore this in a little bit more detail, um, There's only uh, the enemy in the Bible is the one who is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, So in all of your interpersonal contact, it's, it's worth thinking about God doesn't throw sin in people's faces. And if you do, you're not acting in accord with God's spirit. The only person in the Bible who throws sin in people's faces, that's Revelation 12, a couple other places in the Old Testament and Job, The accuser of the brethren that's the one who throws sin in people's faces so um, a bit of a sober reflection there but certainly worth thinking about love does not rejoice at unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth here you want to look at the element of rejoicing so what is it that causes you to rejoice I think of the woman at the well uh, when Jesus confronts her sin uh, if you 're not familiar with that story it 's brilliant because she takes that, and she she 's super excited about it like that 's a picture of rejoicing at the truth. She goes back to her village and she says, "Come meet the man who told me everything I had ever done. Anybody here want to do that <laughs> i don 't even want to go to my high school reunion <laughs> I, I don't you know yeah, I, I, I guess I can 't say that I have health in that area." Uh, but she's just so open about it and so joyful about having met Jesus that she, like her sin doesn't even matter. Come hear about it. Come see this, this man. So the truth brings us joy. It's not just intellectual assent to an idea. It's not just that we think the right things. It actually like captivates our hearts, that we, we love the truth um, and not using it to beat people down. We just, we just love it. We rejoice in it. And lastly, love put, <laughs> this one's my, my own translation, sorry. Love puts up with all, believes all, hopes all, and is steadfast through all. So in 1 Corinthians 9, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So that's that same word, that we endure anything. Next slide. Oh, well, there's more. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Any more on that? Yeah. Hebrews 12, another chapter worthy of extended reflection, if you're into thinking about Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So this idea of endurance So this last clause shows the naive optimism of love. So when we have love and when we act in love toward others, we're steadfast in the way that God is. We put aside issues that are less important, and we're steadfast. It doesn't mean that we enable, uh, but we're singularly focused on the main thing when it comes to loving other people. So to summarize, I know that's a lot. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose without losing your head. Uh, To summarize, love is fundamentally humanizing of others, it's compelling, and it looks to serve others and not to be served. Love orients us to others in the way that God is oriented to us. God's love in Christ seeks the flourishing of the other at his own expense. That's who God is, human flourishing at his own expense. God's love forgoes his own rights and offers himself in self-sacrificing ways. Our love should do no less. Our love for others is a glad response to God's love for us. It reflects God's heart, and it compels us to take God's perspective as we look at other people, to look at them in ways that are patient and kind, not arrogant, not boastful, um, keeping no record of evil, to see others as he sees them. So I believe there's a Q&A time. There has been a lot of information that has been transmitted here, uh, so I realized that uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but the mind can only take what the uh, the end can endure, meaning when you're sitting there for so long. So absorb as much as posterior. That's that's it right there. I, I didn't want to use the word posterior because this is being recorded and there's kids here, so <laughs> ask your kids or ask your parents, kids, what's a posterior. Uh, Sorry, that wasn't helpful at all. Um, So... um, Yeah, that's true. Are there any questions or any thoughts? Um, I can endure long periods of awkward silence. It's okay. All right. Um, Like I said, there's a lot to take in but i do think it's super important next week i want to talk about this idea of being known by god coming to maturity and being known by god so if there's any thoughts you have on that i would love to hear them Uh, but i'll i'll pray now and invite the worship team back forward god we are uh, thankful for your word we're thankful that your spirit is operative here and i pray that What has uh, been said today that's been of value uh, would take root in us, that we would hear it as a community, uh, that you would move us toward uh, wholeness, not just as individuals, but as a group of uh, your followers. Uh, Help us to hear you throughout our week. Help us to meditate in ways that that reflect your orientation of love to us. uh, And be with us, we pray. Amen.